Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians. We'll be looking at Ephesians 21, 521 through 33. Now, Paul has spent the first half of Ephesians speaking about the gospel. You might remember there was really only one command in the first three chapters to remember what you were before God saved you. It's, instead of a list of commands, it's a retelling of God's covenant faithfulness, retelling of God's saving work, how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and God united us to Christ. He saved us, and his great plan that in the fullness of time now revealed that Jesus would be the center and the head of all things. Now the second half of Ephesians is filled with our response to the gospel, practical instruction of how we ought to live in light of God's saving work. He saved us, not for us to just wander around, but for us to walk in his ways. And what we've seen so far is that God's plan wasn't just to keep us from punishment, but to change us to become godly. He saves us not just from hell. His plan is to save us from sin. That we would become imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Now Paul began this practical instruction by telling us the general characteristics of the Christian life. It's kind of like the Beatitudes in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He tells us Christian character. But now in our passage this morning, we move from Christian character to Christian relationships. We will be looking at his teaching on three fundamental relationships in human life, that of husband and wife, later that of parents and their children, and finally masters and servants. This morning we are turning our attention to the first and most fundamental of human relationships, that of husband and wife. So what does the good news of Jesus Christ have to do with our relationships as husbands and wives. Let's listen carefully. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. Now, this morning, I want us to consider this passage under three points. Pretty easy, really. First, the big picture. What does this passage teach us about marriage in general? Secondly, what are the duties of wives to their husbands in this passage? And thirdly, what are the duties of husbands to their wives? And I think we really ought to start by looking at the big picture because we really can't understand the meaning of the duties that are mentioned here if we think of them with only a worldly perspective. Paul's perspective of marriage, the Bible's perspective of marriage, is fundamentally and vastly different from the world's view of marriage. It was so back when Paul wrote this. It is so still today. So we must first understand what this passage says about marriage in general. It is the underlying foundation for all the instruction that Paul gives here. So what is this foundational truth that Paul speaks of here? It is that marriage was designed by God to be a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. That's astounding to really think about. You probably weren't thinking about it the first time you read Genesis 1 through 3. But before Adam and Eve, our very first parents, were ever made, God was thinking about how Jesus Christ would lay down his life to save his bride, the church. And marriage was meant to reflect that, that relationship. In fact, marriage does reflect that relationship, even in unbelieving marriages. Just as unbelieving fathers still reflect God's role as a father, they just do it very badly. It's a shattered image. We are still, though, God's image. Our relationships even reflect God's character and who God is and what he has done for us. Marriage is meant to reflect God's love for the church, Christ's love for the church. Your marriage reflects that poorly or better. But that's what it is. Your marriage is temporary. It will not last forever. The church's relationship to Christ, that lasts forever. 
single or married, your entire life is premarital counseling if you are a Christian. We are, we are getting prepared to have this wonderful relationship with Christ. Your marriage then is supposed to be a display of the gospel for the whole world. Isn't that amazing? Marriage isn't just about personal happiness and fulfillment for as long as that works out for you. Despite what the world may think of marriage, it isn't merely about loving another and being loved with a self-denying covenant love. It's even bigger than that. Marriage cannot be understood correctly until you understand that it was God who designed it and that he designed it to reflect the glory of his saving work. And brothers and sisters, Christ is the center of everything. All things in heaven and earth are united in him. And until you come to grips with that, everything will be out of place for you. You can't understand yourself without knowing about God because you were made in his image. You can't understand your marriage without thinking of Jesus and the church. If you read over this passage and give it a title, you would probably say, the duties of husbands and wives or something like that. But look back over it. Look at how many verses mention Jesus. It's almost every single verse. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now as the church submits to Christ, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So on, so on, so on, all the way through. This passage seems to speak about Jesus more than it speaks about husbands or wives in many ways. Paul is doing that because it's the only way that he knows to speak of, the, of marriage. It's the way he understands marriage, the correct way. It's all about, Christ is in all our relationships here. Now, God's plan for all of creation and all of history is that everything would be summed up in Christ. So that means Christ must be central in your relationships. It's not just husbands or wives, but all these groups. He cannot speak about any of these relationships without reference to Jesus. Wives, he says, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to your masters as to Christ. Masters, treat your servants as one knowing that your master is in heaven. See, Paul brings Christ to bear on every human relationship. No relationship is just two people. It never has been. It never will be. God is involved in everything. Now, if Christ, if God also exalted Christ as sovereign over everything, he must be sovereign in your relationships. So all of your relationships, including your marriage, God must be central. 
It must be Christ-centered. But of all the relationships, marriage is special. Marriage was designed from the beginning to display Christ's gracious love in a way like no other relationship. That's the relationship that Christ has with the church. Just as the crowning moment of the first creation was the marriage of Adam and Eve, the crowning moment of the new creation will be the wedding supper of the Lamb. There is a special unity in marriage, closer and more important and more foundational than even the relationship between parents and children. See, in verse 31 here, Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, children, they leave their parents. They cleave to their spouse. And at one point, my children... I've left my parents years ago. At one point, my children will leave me. That's the way it should be. I'll miss them, but that's the way it should be. I won't leave my wife till death do us part. That is the tighter, more binding relationship. So there's a special unity in marriage. And Paul amazingly says this, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now, this is a great mystery. Really, most of the mysteries that are in the Bible have to do with plurality and unity together. The Trinity being one God, the mystery Jesus Christ having, being truly man and truly God, and yet one Christ, it's a mystery. The sacramental union, mystery. The mystery of of us being one church. The mystery of us being united to Christ. All these things are, are mysteries. It's a great mystery that Paul adds, which is about a verse that's, Obviously about husbands and wives. Paul says he's speaking with reference to the church. Well, which is it? Is it about husbands and wives or is it about Christ and the church? It's both. The great mystery is not only that husbands and wives have this wonderful unity, it's also that the church becomes one flesh with Christ. Isn't that amazing? That we are united with Christ. Now, no one ever hated his own flesh. Certainly not Christ. He cannot hate you. Ever. He loves you because you are not just his bride in this passage. You are his body. That's how close it is He considers us. Marriage is designed to display and to reflect that. Now, the duties prescribed here 
are seen in that light. First, Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then again in verse 24, As the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now this command flows from verse 21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. As Christians, filled by the Spirit, we are to have this general attitude of service to one another. We are to consider, consider others as more important than ourselves. But this doesn't mean that this does away with all relationships. We are, we are to have, we, there are roles of submission within the relationships. Wives are called to submit. Children are called to submit. The servants are called to submit. It's not repeated for the masters to submit to their slaves, for the parents to submit to their children, or for the husband to submit for his wife. But it is generally true that we are to have this attitude of service, that we all sacrifice our own desires for one another. That's love. The love does not seek its own. And if Christ, who, who is king of all, came not to be served, but to serve, if he humbles himself to serve men and women, certainly we are to serve one another. But this, of course, again, does not do away with the relationships. Paul immediately moves from that into this this general subjection into this relationship of husbands and wives. He says that God has designed marriage in such a way that the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Christ doesn't submit to the church. And so it's not a mutual submission here that's being called for. Wives are called to submit to their husbands, who is the head of the marriage. That's the way God designed marriage. Might not like it, but you're not the creator either. This is what he designed, and it's good. It's very good. Now, I've heard it said before that man is the head, but woman is the neck, and she turns the head wherever she wants it to go. And you often do, but Funny as that is, it's not what Paul means. Wives, he means that God in his infinite wisdom and kindness has placed you in a position of subjection. And is evident from, is evidence of the effects of sin in this world that as soon as we hear this, we're looking for a way out. We want qualifications. But scripture is clear. Wives are to be subject to their husbands, their own husbands, not men in general, their own husbands, but in everything. I'm tempted by the world's ways to try to soften this, but I won't. Because scripture is clear. We are, wives are called to submit to their husbands in everything. 
This doesn't mean, of course, that you are obligated to obey your husbands if your husbands tell you to sin, just as if you are obligated to obey the government if the government causes, tells you to sin. In that case, not only may you disobey, you must disobey. We must obey God rather than men. But nevertheless, husbands are placed as the head, not of a particular area alone, but of the whole relationship. You might make an exception for the kitchen or something and tell your husband to stay out. But wives are called to submit to their husbands. And this, this could be a lot of unpacking, but it doesn't, Paul doesn't spend a lot of time on it here. It is a humbling, scary command. Because women, you know what we are like, what we men are like, and it's scary. It wouldn't be so bad in a perfect world. You know, in a perfect world, communism would work out really well. You know, monarchy would work out really well. Capitalism would work out really well. But in reality, in, in the world we live in, they all kind of have problems because every one of them has a sinful leader. Somebody in power is sinful. Men are sinful. Sometimes they're selfish, lazy, foolish. Oftentimes, you know it's true. I don't have to convince you of it. You know better than your husbands. You're, sometimes you're more talented than your husbands. That's just the truth. None of that changes God's word, though. Jesus is certainly more, more talented than Joseph and Mary. He nevertheless submitted to them, not because they knew better, but because that's the relationship God placed him in. Well, he submitted to Pilate. He said, God placed, you wouldn't have any authority over me unless God gave it to you. Nevertheless, he's admitting Pilate has authority over Jesus in one area. He submits to the authority that God has placed over him. God has placed you in this way in a wonderful and beautiful position to display in your relationship to your husband how the church should submit to Christ. And I think that beauty is all the more profound when you submit to your husband even though he's imperfect. Just as if when uh, God calls us to love our enemies, when he calls us to walk two miles instead of one mile, it makes the world stop and wonder, what does, this, what does it mean that this talented and wise woman would cheerfully submit to her husband? And in that, you honor God for the reason is that you want to honor, your, honor Christ by the way that you submit to your husbands. Now, husbands... You are the head of your wives. God has placed someone who is your equal and likely, in many ways, more talented and knowledgeable than you under your care and leadership. This is not so that you may be served or that you may be lazy and selfish. Not at all. Put that sinful, worldly conception of authority out of your mind forever. Remember that you are also under authority, under Christ, 
And he doesn't give you authority over your wife for your own sake, but for her sake. You have no right to rule like a despot. You are called to love and to give yourself for your wife like Christ did for you. That's what God's word says here. Not husbands, lead your wives. Not husbands, rule over your wives. But rather, husbands, love your wives. And how are you to love? What does that love look like? It is cross-shaped love. It looks like the love of Christ hanging on the cross, giving it up, giving up all, laying down everything for his beloved bride. Is that what your love looks like? Can an unbeliever watch the way you care for your wife, the way you speak with her, the patience you have, the, the way you live for her, and learn from your actions about Christ's love for the church. That is what you are called to do, to walk in love as Christ loved you and given himself for you. Now, all of you who love the Lord, look at the tender words that Paul uses to describe God's love for you here. It says, Christ loved you He gave himself for you so that he might sanctify you and cleanse you. And this is so unlike the world where it's expected that the wedding day is a woman's most beautiful day. And after that, you know, it kind of goes downhill. That's not the way it is in Christian marriages. That's not the way it is with Christ and the church. This reflects this passage in Ezekiel, I think, where God finds us, it's kind of gruesome for me to say, but wallowing around in blood. And he takes us and he washes us. This wonderful picture. His glory, his splendor is given to us. And he presents us to himself. In a Christian marriage, the, the beauty of the bride is to increase on and on. I've been married. I haven't been married nearly as long as many of you, 10 years. But I love my wife more now than I did the day I married her. I have 10 years of reasons why I love her more. Even Christ, his relationship with, the, with God amazing as it is, increased. It says in Luke that Christ increased in stature and in favor with God and man. Christ increased with, in favor with God. How? Because he showed himself as a man to be submitting to God, loving God, going through everything that God had given him. And so at the cross, at the cross, God, even though he had to turn his face away, so to speak, 
It was his proudest moment. That there at the cross, he saw Christ's love for God. He saw Christ's obedience for God. And he could say, if ever I loved you, my Jesus, tis now. Now, our relationship with Christ is this way too. Christ, he makes us more beautiful. You are so hopefully walking closer and more godly to him, with him now than when you first became a Christian. If not, just wait, you will, if you're truly a Christian. He will complete the work that he began in you. He, who is the author of your faith, will prove to be the perfecter of it. He will present you to himself unblemished, spotless. That is his plan for us. Husbands, take note. This is the way Christ cares for the, for the church. She increases in beauty because he invests in her. He cleanses her. He loves her. Like, a, like this garden that, that grows. He tends her carefully. And so... This is the way it should be in your marriage. The gospel itself is to be like an instruction marriage for your, instruction manual, sorry, for your marriage. It, in Christ, we see a good example, the best example of what husbands are to be towards their wives. So if you want me to recommend a good book on marriage, I have four in particular. So you might want to write this down. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You think I'm joking. You don't have to write it down. But it is the best example we have. Fix your eyes on Christ. His life is the model. He is the perfect husband. There in the life of Christ is the ultimate and perfect model of marital love. Husbands and wives, you must keep your eyes on Christ. You must remember Christ is cent central in your marriage. God's instruction for every believer certainly applies to your relationship as husbands and wives. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself for you. And every believer, husband, wife, or single, you are called to walk in love like that. You all, all who are in Christ, you are engaged. You are the bride. And we are to purify ourselves, even as he is pure, looking forward to the day when we are with him, when he returns for us. But husbands, now you are especially called to display that glorious love, most of all in the way that you care for your wife. For the wife... Your wife is not simply anybody. You and your wife are one flesh in this mysterious way. You are to nourish her and cherish her as your own body. You know the moment when any part of your body is the least bit uncomfortable and all your attention goes to that spot to try to rectify the situation. You take time to wash yourself 
You take time to care for your body. And you are one flesh, one body with your wife. How could you ever consider taking advantage of her? God forbid it. When you love your wife, you love yourself. And when you love your wife like Christ loves the church, you glorify God in it. But you might say your wife doesn't appreciate your sacrifice. She doesn't, she doesn't care about how much you're serving her. That's not your concern. Do you appreciate Christ's love as you should? Certainly not. Remember, he loved us when we were completely undeserving. Your sacrificial love and tender care for your wife should be unconditional. It doesn't matter whether your wife is even a Christian or not. You are still who you are. You are to be who you are because of you are a Christian, not because of what your wife is. Wives, for you, you can still glorify God in your marriage, even if your husband is not a Christian. You are still a wife. Uh, you are still a Christian. So your love is unconditional. Wives, your husband is not the reason why you should be submissive to him, whether or not he's good or bad. It's not dependent on whether he's a good leader or not. Whether or not he loves you the way Christ loved the church, your subjection is also to be unconditional. Not because your husband has earned it, but because of Christ. Because you honor God by it. Husbands, you are to love your wife the way Christ loved the church, not because they earned it, but because you honor God by it. Now, there's wonderful wisdom and direction here for husbands and wives about the origin, the purpose of marriage, and their calling as husbands and wives. There might not be a better passage in the whole Bible on marriage, but there is also a beautiful and tender message here for every believer whether you are or ever have been or ever will be married. This passage reveals God's tender love and care and compassion for you, and it holds out this special promise. If you are in Christ, he can never forget you. He can never stop loving you. you know, these, these wonderful pictures that God gives us of unity that Christ has with the church we are a field. We are, the, we are the branches and he is the vine. We are a temple and he is the cornerstone. But there's something particularly wonderful about this picture, isn't there? We are the bride. He is our groom. This, this one pictures his love for you better than any of the others. In his love, he has united you to himself. He will always love you and cherish you and nourish you, nourish you as his own body. One day, brothers and sisters, you will see him. One day, he will present us to himself without spot or wrinkle, and we will be forever with the Lord.
Dear brothers and sisters, consider this love. Consider his sacrifice. Consider how even now he cares for you, how he cleanses you, how he nourishes you, and desire that he would cleanse you all the more. Do not resist it. Seek it out. He wants you to grow. He wants you to be beautiful. Let us prepare ourselves for the day when we will see him and we will love him just as we ought. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful picture that you've given us of your love to us and our love to you. Help us to submit to you as we ought. Thank you that even in this world, if we don't have perfect husbands, we have a perfect husband in you. And thank you that even though we are not a perfect bride, you do not give up on us. Lord, help us to reflect your submission to your Father. Help us to reflect your love for us in our own marriages. We pray that you would make our marriages stronger than they've ever been. And that in all of it, you would help us to fix our eyes on you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.